Welcome. If you're just joining us, uh, we're in a three-month series called A New Way to Be Human. This is where the rubber meets the road in our faith, when knowledge and belief become actual behaviors that change us and in our interaction with the world. And each week, we've uh, taught on one of 12 disciplines, and disciplines are tried and true practices of Jesus. The early church and pretty much every Jesus follower for the last two millennium has done these disciplines, these practices. In today's lingo, these uh, practices would probably sit on like the New York Times bestsellers list as like the 12 habits of highly effective Jesus followers, or um, how to win life and influence people for Jesus, right? But don't be fooled. What sets these practices or habits apart from any old list made by self-help gurus is that these disciplines open us up to the influence to be shaped and formed by the living God, by the Holy Spirit, animated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Because our human efforts, if you haven't figured this out, by like indirect willpower will only get us so far. We were meant to live in the divine relationship with God. To use a biblical language, like we read earlier, like Paula read, uh, we were meant to remain in the vine, or other translations say, to abide in the vine. So the way followers of Jesus have done this, abiding in the vine, is by developing a rule of life. Now, if that's unfamiliar language to you, don't think rules like plural, but rule singular. And the Latin word was regula, where we get the words ruler or regulation. It was a word for a straight piece of wood. Uh, Many scholars think that it was the Greek word used for a trellis in a vineyard. Um, Now, for the six of you in the room that maybe like don't garden, Um, Take a look at the artwork we made for this series, and you'll get an idea of what we mean by a trellis. Um, So as something grows, say grapevine or something, when you have a trellis in place, it then is able to grow up that, that regular, that rule, and it becomes a healthier plant and easier to trim and do all the things, right? A trellis allows the vine to grow to its full potential health and youthfulness. So that's what we mean by a rural life. It's, it's simply a trellis, a schedule or a set of practices and relational rhythms that organize our lives around Jesus's invitation to abide in the vine. It's how we live in alignment with our deepest desires for life with God and his kingdom. Uh, prior to St. Benedict in the sixth century, the moniker rule of life was used interchangeably with way of life. So your rule is simply just the way you live and or follow Jesus in your community. So keep that in your mind. We're going to return to that thought at the end. It's just kind of a fun fact to begin with. Uh, So today we are finishing uh, the first four of inward practices outlined by Richard Foster's book. We are kind of traveling through a book together. And today we're going to end by looking at meditation. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, so already, if you grew up in a church like me, um, you're like, whoa, Michael, uh, I'm not into Eastern religion stuff, okay? Right? I get it. As for me growing up, like, it meant that meditation was not only avoided in the church I grew up in, but it was shunned. You didn't talk about it. You didn't do it. And, and I guess that kind of made sense. I mean, after all, I was literally first introduced to meditation through Master Splinter and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Right? <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. So we've got some work to do on this word. So first obstacle, right out of the gate. 
Is meditation bad? No, absolutely not. Unfortunately, I've heard many Bible preachers, including Foster in his book, I think they do a disservice by oversimplifying meditation. And they put it into two camps, claiming that Eastern meditation is emptying the mind versus Christian meditation, which is filling the mind with Scripture. And part of that's true. Um, but unfortunately, that would say that all types of secular meditation are bad. And that's not true. It's not that simple. There's a lot of gray area occupied uh, neither by Buddhists or by Christians. Not to mention, Christianity is a religion that came from the East. So let that burst your bubble for a second, right? <laughs> it's not American, okay? Americans didn't create Christianity. Well, in the 1990s, meditation might have been written off and left abandoned to the hippies and the yoga instructors, but today, it's more popular than ever. Um, perhaps you've seen all the meditation apps that you can find on your phone. Here's just to name a few. Headspace, Unplug, Insight Timer, Budify, and I like this last one, 10% Happier Meditation. That's the name of the app. Real honest there. They're not trying to sell you on too much, you know? Just 10% Happier Meditation. The list goes on. My wife actually uses one of these apps, one of the more popular ones called Calm, and she loves it. And you can go look for yourself. Everybody's doing it. This is fascinating. Everybody's meditating from Bill Ford, the owner of Ford Motor Company, to LeBron James, to Lady Gaga, all meditating. Oprah, Ivanka Trump, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, all open about how meditation has helped their lives how it has become part of their daily routine. But more importantly than any of the people that I just mentioned, even Barbara Millicent Roberts is meditating. You guys don't know who Barbara is. And maybe we can show you a picture. You probably know her by her nickname, Barbie. (laughs) That's right. My buddy sent me this picture. This is in Target. You can go get it this afternoon if you want to help your kids get into the rhythm of meditating. Even Barbie is teaching our children meditation. Wow. Yeah, it says, breathe with, breathe with me, Barbie. <laughs> so what's all the hype about? Let's get a quick definition. As you can imagine, it's very healthy and positive, this definition of meditation. What is meditation? Meditation is a practice used by nearly everyone around the world, including those who don't believe in God or a God, in which an individual uses a technique such as mindfulness or focusing the mind on a particular object, thought, or activity to train attention and awareness and achieve a mentally clear and emotionally calm and stable state. It's, it's akin to contemplation, the action of looking thoughtfully at something for a long time. Meditation is deep, reflective thought. And where did it come from? Now, If you want to argue that it was invented by Judeo-Christians, you certainly could. Isaac meditates in Genesis chapter chapter 24. Now, that's almost like a thousand years before Buddha comes on the scene. But I think you'd be missing the point. And this is important really for our whole series. That is to say, meditation, like all the spiritual practices, is a tool. It's a means of grace. That is to say, it's a means to an end. So example, if you meditate on scripture, the byproduct will be thinking and acting more like Jesus, yeah? Likewise, if you meditate on the teachings of Buddha, the byproduct might be karma or pantheism or possibly being rebirthed as a golden doodle, you know? (laughs) Take a pick. 
Look, meditation doesn't make you a Buddhist any more than eating Thai food does. Likewise, it doesn't make you any more Jewish than eating challah bread, which is delicious, by the way. I don't know if you've tried it. So we don't need to be foolish. We can use meditation. Now, let's get the Christian meditation definition up on the screen. Christian meditation, a form of prayer or meditation in which a person seeks to pass beyond mental images and concepts to a direct experience of the divine, Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Meditation is a form of prayer and study of God's word. And many writers, including Dallas Willard, would encourage us to view all the spiritual disciplines as interdependent or reciprocal with these primary rhythms. There's three rhythms he gives. Gathered worship, like what we're doing right here, daily psalm reading, and prayer, talking with God. Now, you might consider this like a hierarchy of disciplines. Therefore, meditation is, like I've said before, a useful tool in your prayer workshed, so to speak. Here's how Eugene Peterson depicts this interdependency, and um, you'll have to forgive the crudeness of this model. I didn't have time to paint it or build it to scale, but um, can we get that next slide up there? Oh, I hope it's going to show. Is it not going to show? No, it's not going to show. Oh, no. This was the big thing. Okay, we're going to have to use our imaginations. Are you ready? Yes, we're going to, yeah. So the first thing, if you can imagine like a cloud or sun or rain in the sky, and that rain would then fall onto the second thing, which is the soil, your earth, right? And then below that would be a picture that I had, you're not going to see it, that was the tools, like gardening tools. And so some of this might be like, you might... Remember this from, I don't know, science in grade school, right? And there's a word for it, really scientific word called photosynthesis. Anybody? Yes. Okay. Photosynthesis. Well, the idea that Eugene Peterson plays here is that God's word, his voice, his spoken word is like the sun. It's like the rain. It's the natural elements that then feed our soul. And our soul is the soil. Following me? Okay. And then his main point is that right there with our soul is worship gatherings, daily psalms, prayer, and listening. These are the essential non-negotiables of following Jesus. And then below that would be the gardening tools, which he would call the spiritual disciplines. And so at any moment, we can go grab any of these spiritual disciplines and use them as a means of grace, as a tool to help us along in our faith, in our walk with Jesus. And he points out a few other things that I think are interesting. One, not all the soil is the same, right? Down in San Diego, you can grow lemons like nobody's business. Up here, a little bit harder. But I have found out that pumpkins and squash grow like weeds, all right? You know what I'm talking about? Don't plant more than one. Just a little advice. Every soil is different. Therefore, every, every soul in this room is different. And so the spiritual disciplines kind of come at us at different times and different places in our life to help us along in following Jesus. But hopefully we never leave out those three, the hierarchy, the primary things, which are gathering together, reading the Psalms daily, and being in prayer, in conversation, listening prayer with God. Make sense? Okay, I got to find my notes here. Went, Went off the script here for a second. Yeah. If you and I aren't gathering in community, 
or actively praying the Psalms in conversation with God. We can't expect to grow, right? We can't be that plant that grows through the trellis to mature or to change in the ways of God. The many ways that we create space to talk to God fulfills what the Apostle Paul's instructions were to offer your bodies. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Or to pray without ceasing, right? To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To pray without ceasing. Look, all these three non-negotiables have been proven in the life of the disciples and ancient and modern. Praying the Psalms, for example, talking and listening to God is one of God's precious gifts to us. It's a precious gift to us. God will meet us in love and his love will draw the attention of our souls. Fascinating. Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to resurface that point at the end. Meditation is a tool to help us in our prayer and study. It's a means to an end, a continual life-giving grace. Thomas Merton said this. I think we have a slide. True meditation is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. And in constant prayer, the many forms like meditation, will only burden us as wings burden the bird in flight. Look at that second quote for a little bit. Only burden us as wings burden the bird in flight. It's good. Look, meditation, I'm going to say this over and over again this morning, meditation is not hard, okay? It's not hard. It's not for the spiritual professionals. And its value, its impact, its ability to change your life has been proven across all systems of beliefs and in modern science. For us who follow Jesus, meditation is something we practice or make a routine of doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German martyr for Jesus during World War II, when he was asked why he meditated, he simply replied, because I'm a Christian. Wow. Because I'm a Christian. So how is meditation such an important tool? We're going to really nerd out now. Are you guys ready? Go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible app to Psalm 1, and I'm going to pray. Psalm 1. Father, we come as your children, as your family, but also as your students, as apprentices to your son, Jesus. So even now, we just want to be open and ready to receive what you want to speak to us this morning. God, help us see that you desire for us to live in this lifetime, life to the fullest. Life to the full, as your son says in John chapter 10. Let us experience that now, God. Your Holy Spirit moving in this room. All God's people said, amen. Amen. It's kind of a long intro. Don't worry. We'll be done soon. (laughs) Meditation in the Bible. Meditation in the Bible happens explicitly 58 times. There are two Hebrew words that are used to convey the idea of meditation with various meanings, like listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing God's deeds, or ruminating on God's law. And more, literally, to mutter or speak quietly. And I'll show you just a few of these examples. Genesis 24, as I mentioned earlier, Isaac went out to meditate in the field and in the evening. Psalm 63, verse 3, I think of you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. 
And in the Gospels, we know that Jesus made a habit of withdrawing from the exceeding, exceedingly busy ministry that he had to be with God, to hear his voice, and to meditate on Scripture. It's why he, when he was tempted by the devil, right, after 40 days of fasting and being in solitude and probably meditating on Scripture, what did he do when he was tempted by the devil? He quoted Scripture. It was constantly on the tip of his tongue. And, of course, we have in Paul, Timothy, Chapter 4, verse 15, 15, Paul uses the Greek word for meditate, instructing Timothy to meditate upon these things, give yourself wholly to them. So it's all over Scripture. But what stands above all of these examples is what hopefully you've turned to in your Bible in Psalm 1. And we're going to read that. Here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, the law can refer to a number of things, most most particularly Torah, or the first five books of your Bible. Uh, But that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean all of Scripture in totality. So when you see the law, you can just think of one who meditates on the Scriptures. And then look, we get another agrarian metaphor. Go figure. Here it is. That person, verse 3, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And now here's a stark contrast. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, there's a clear juxtaposition being made between two types of people, those who delight and meditate on God's word, and those who don't. And the the conclusion is simple, right? It's a good life versus a bad life. Can we just state the obvious, right? So already when you know, or sorry, so already we know that meditation is given value in the scriptures as something that dictates our well-being in life. Moving on, there's many forms of meditation. And they can be grouped using different terminology like theoria and praxis or meditation versus contemplation. And we're going to look at some of these things just briefly, and these are kind of my own definitions that I made, because there's one form of meditation that in particular I really want to spend most of our time on this morning. So here's a quick list, different forms of meditation. There is imagination, creation, current events, centering, and then finally, Lectio Divina. Leave that slide up for a second. Imagination, this is, uh, or example of this might be like getting a word picture or a picture in your mind, a story, or maybe even like a song lyric. So God uses pictures in our minds to direct our prayer and our action. And this can be very prophetic, as often depicted in the Bible. The next thing, creation. You could think Psalm 19, the heavens or the universe, declare the glory of God. Or Psalm 8, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So too, Jesus also uses creation all the time to reveal all sorts of truths and life that God, of God to us in his parables and teachings. And we can do the same if we take time to observe creation. Got to keep moving on. Next thing, current events. 
This would be like taking time to read the news or observe social media feeds or observe social constructs around us and what they can reveal to us and how we might then be salt and light in our decaying and dark world. And then centering. Centering. This is when we become still, when we become silent and allow our minds to become centered on God, giving our concerns over to God, and then receiving his love for us. And then finally, Lectio Divina. Okay, wake up. You guys, you guys awake? You tracking with me still? Okay, do you need like a, a quick story or something? No? I'm going to tell it anyways, just because I think it's funny. <laughs> Yesterday morning, my wife and I and our son, three-year-old, were hiking around Smith Rock. And um, she was holding his hand, you know, it's it's kind of a bumpy road there. And and I was like, honey, you just got to let him go. You know, he's got to learn the hard way. Just let him have fun, jump off stuff, trip and fall. And sure enough, she lets go of her hand. And like within the first 50 feet, he just eats it, face plants, you know. And, you know, a little bit bloody, you know, mouth full of dirt. And of course, I run over there and immediately do what I'm accustomed to doing. Hey, buddy, are you okay? You know, this happened. He's a three-year-old. This happened many times. Hey, buddy, are you okay? You just hit your head on your bunk bed or whatever it is. Hey, buddy, are you okay? And, and, and honestly, like, he shook it off well. And uh, I said to him, like, this is kind of a wake-up call. Like, you need to pay attention. <laughs> so when we got home later that day, uh, I went to go take a shower. And I like to preheat the shower water, you know? So I'll go in there. You know, I'm still fully clothed and everything. And I'll just turn on the water. Well, our shower is like this custom shower. It's, I think it's amazing, right? And so it's a walk-in shower, and it's got super high pressure, and then it's even got one of those like little handheld shower thingies, yeah, whatever you want to call them. And um, so that's important because as I went in there and turned it to full blast, somebody had turned on that little arm shower thing, right, the handheld one. And so it just throttles me, like blasts me. And the way that it happens, you know, with all the pressure, like started at my feet and then right up and then just stopped at my face. Just water happening. And I screamed. I was like, ah, mother, father, what's going on here? And my wife and my son heard me. And then almost way too immediately, my son runs into the the bathroom and says, hey, buddy, are you okay? Now, I'm not saying he did it. There's only three people in our household, but... Okay, you guys awake now, good. To truly meditate on the scriptures, Lectio Divina, the church has done this historically and emphasized the practice. And Lectio Divina means divine reading. The premise of Lectio Divina dates all the way back to origin in the third century. It thrived during the monastic movement in particular and on into the Protestant Reformation, as well as in the Catholic Church. Lectio Divina is understood as a form of study. For centuries, disciples of Jesus have understood the practice of Lectio Divina as a means of meeting with God himself in the scriptures. And there's a process, and this process unfolds in five stages what I would call the five D's of dodgeball. They are dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. No, that's the wrong notes. Hold on. Sorry. Oh, sorry. The five R's of Lectio Divina. Okay, you ready? It is ready yourself to meet with God, read, 
reflect, respond, and rest. Sergio, you can leave that slide up as we talk through it. The five R's of Lectio Divina. First one, ready yourself to meet with God. That is to be present and ready to receive from God. The second one, to read. Originally intended, the scriptures were originally intended to be read out loud. So you might pause. You might notice certain words or phrases that are strung throughout the Bible, different themes. Third thing is to reflect, to maybe even reread that passage, and then to take it personally, which is important, right? It's good to hold the scriptures in the context, right? It wasn't actually written with you, but it was written with you in mind. And so you can put yourself into that story. What does this mean for me and for my life? And then four, to respond, to be honest with yourself and with God, right? Sometimes you read scripture and you go, man, God, I'm just not there yet. Or man, I struggle with that same thing. I don't know what to do, God. Those are honest and beautiful prayers that God welcomes. And the last thing is to rest, to sit still, not just to rush on to the next thing, right? You don't just read left, right, and then slam the Bible shut, and then right off to your next agenda. No, you rest. You sit still. And I got to show you this. My buddy sent me this snapshot last night when he found out that I was uh, going to teach on meditation. Do we have this next slide? Yeah. Now, you probably can't see it, but it says this. I'll read it to you. Woman listens to guided meditation on 1.75 times speed. Right? You guys ever do that and you're listening to a book or something and you speed it up so you can get through it faster? <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Woman listens to guided meditation almost at two times the speed. I think it's safe to say that slowing down is hard for our culture, right? For some more than for others. And I just say, when we come to the scriptures, we get frustrated with Bible reading. We do. We get frustrated with the Bible because it, it won't just do what we want it to do. In fact, the longer I've studied the Bible, the more I've realized that it intends to frustrate me, right? It intends to frustrate us. And most of that is because we read it too fast. There's like no skimming the Bible or the surface with the Bible. We have to read it slow. Now, many of us in the past just wanted like the cliff note versions of the Bible so that maybe we can win arguments or that we can then view the Bible as just simply a rule book to give us the do's and the don'ts. Today, a fully different perspective that I encounter is one that's fine with the Bible as a story as long as it doesn't tell us what to do. Isn't that interesting? Two radically different approaches to the Bible, right? And just one generation, <laughs> one generation change. I'm fine with the Bible as a story as long as it just doesn't tell me how to live my life. Either way, in both scenarios, the Bible can frustrate us. The reality is the Bible is both. It is both. It, it does give us rules. It does tell us how to live our life. It's a story designed by God to change you, to change me. It's a story that intends to mold our perspective on what is right and wrong and how to think and talk and live and how to treat other people, how to handle money and sexuality and every single thing to which most people don't welcome the correction or the interference of any kind. That is what the Bible does. The library scripture, the Bible, is designed to be read slowly in meditation, very slowly. 
day and night for a lifetime. There are layered riches within, meant to encourage you and not discourage your reading. It's not meant to frustrate you. My point is we come to the Bible going way too fast, rushing from one thing to the next, and we want the Bible to meet us on our terms, and it just doesn't. It's a different form of literary scripture. And you will discover a new way to be human as the Bible as you actually practice reading the Bible slowly in meditation. Over time, it will begin to shape your thoughts and opinions in life, your worldview, and guide you in decision-making. Now, this week, hopefully you're on the eWeekly. We're going to send out a video by the Bible Project. I think they do a perfect job in describing more of what Lectio Divina is and reading slowly through the scriptures and the Bible as meditation literature. All the disciples of Jesus throughout church history have held that the Bible was inspired by God himself and thus authoritative over the disciples' life. We delight in the scriptures, even the ambiguity of the scriptures, because they are an invitation to go deeper, to wrestle, to know more, and in that process to meet with God himself in the text. Now, what does any of that have to do with the rule of life? Stuff we talked about at the beginning. I'll show you call this section the scroll of meditation. And I'm glad you remembered about the rule of life. You're paying attention. That's good. Here's a bit of archaeology, the discovery of the biblical text. I'll put this up on a slide so you can read it with me. Among the ancient Jewish manuscripts that came to be known famously as the Dead Sea Scrolls, one such document was known as the Manual of Discipline. And then later, it was renamed as the Community Rule. In it, the ancient Jewish community refers to the Bible as the scroll of meditation. And that word meditation that they use is the exact same word that we read in Psalm 1. Cool. Yeah. Archaeology. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So the Bible in totality was viewed by the earliest Jesus followers as the scroll of meditation. Three thick, three, wow, three quick things as we wrap up. We're going to come up for air for a moment. Hopefully relevance is starting to sink in. My point is that meditation is not hard. If Barbie can do it, there's hope, right? There's hope for you and I. Now here's just a few final thoughts. Why should you and I meditate? One, to hear God speak. We should meditate to hear God speak. God desires to speak directly to you. You don't need a mediator. You can encounter God yourself. You need only to desire his voice. Now, Christian meditation, in Foster's words, is the ability to hear God's voice and to obey it. For some reason, human beings seem to have this perpetual tendency to have to have somebody else talk to God for them. We are content to have the message secondhand through a priest, a king, a mediator, a prophet, a famous author, an influencer on Instagram, or a pastor at your church. It's like we are scared to go to God ourselves, so we leave it to the religious professionals. Jesus and those who wrote the Bible had something else in mind entirely. Meditation is what boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. God will speak to you. He'll speak to you personally and into your present situation. 
So don't be afraid. God is merciful. Whatever he speaks to you, though difficult to hear sometimes, will be soaked in grace and mercy. Remember that the God we serve is love. That's how the Apostle John talked about him. He said, God is love. It's his character. You don't need to be scared to have those conversations with God. Okay, why should we meditate? Second thought, because you already are. Because you already are meditating on something, and it's likely ruining your soul. Yeah. So you might be thinking, Michael, do you really think, do you really believe that setting aside 30 seconds in the morning to meditate is actually going to change my life? Well, let me ask you this. Do automobile companies, insurance companies, fashion companies, Hollywood movie makers, and beverage companies spend millions of dollars into having your attention for 30 seconds? Millions of dollars. We just watched the Super Bowl, right? We saw this. Yes. Why do they do that? Because they know the power of thought life. When a thought enters your mind, it has a potential to become an idea that you will inherently live towards meaning you will begin to do whatever it takes to fulfill the will of that thing, that idea that was planted into your mind. So if it's drive a car, you're going to want a new car. You're going to be unsatisfied with the one that you have. That probably works perfectly fine, but maybe the seat heater isn't working, right? If it's to buy a house, you're constantly going to be looking to change houses. You'll be unsatisfied with the one you have. Or to see that movie or to purchase that drink. You know, they do this for a reason, Our adversary, the devil, already has you programmed to crave things that work against the kingdom of God to the will the kingdoms of this world. Consumerism, false joy, momentary happiness, or slavery to a type of freedom that makes you your own God. You are being formed into the image of this world, not the image of God or his son Jesus, if you don't meditate with God on a scripture, if you don't give God that 30 seconds, that minute here or there, that lunchtime break, that quiet prayer before going to bed, you are meditating on something and it is forming you. And I would argue it's forming you, forming you and making you increasingly inhuman, less human. The things of this world are making you less human, where God wants to form you and make you more human. So my third thought is, why do we meditate? To learn how to live again. So we can learn how to live again, so we can feel and see and touch and, gosh, learn to be human. The noises and distractions of this world are deafening. They're desensitizing you. They make us less human. Our rushing around from thing to thing, our hurrying and impatience and buying things to make us happy reflects our internal state And our internal state is what needs to be transformed. Stephen Covey, I think that's how you say his name, of the seven habits said, we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. So what happens when you begin to give Jesus 30 seconds, a minute here, two minutes there, memorizing scripture perhaps, reading through it slowly, Lectio Divina, well, your thought life begins to will the things that God wills, to see his kingdom, to be filled with his life, giving spirit, his spirit of love, joy, peace, and so forth. So yes, I I actually really do believe that 30 seconds or a minute or so of Lectio Divina every day will change your life if we make it a habit. 
So why do we meditate? Here's another thought from Eugene Peterson. He said, because everything that is foreign to the way of Jesus will have to let go. No, not have to, but want to. For our desires and aspirations will be more and more conformed by his way, God's way. And increasingly, everything within us will swing like a needle to the pole star of the spirit. Meditation will show us how we were meant to live. Meditation is not hard. I'm going to end by reading this quote from Foster's book. It's really the first thing he gives in his chapter on meditation. I think we have it up on the screen. Yeah. In contemporary society, our adversary, the Satan, majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Psychiatrist Carl Jung once remarked, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. If we hope to move beyond the superficialities of our culture, including our religious culture, we must be willing to go down into the recreating silences, into the inner world of contemplation or meditation. In their writings, all the masters of meditation beckon us to be pioneers of this frontier, this frontier of the spirit. Though it may sound strange to modern ears, we should, without shame, enroll as apprentices, disciples, in the school of contemplative prayer, meditation. And this is the new way to be human. So again, meditation is not hard. Now, because it is impossible to learn meditating from like a teacher on stage or a book, uh, we want to learn meditating by practicing. And so we want to invite you guys this week to practice meditation. And I've just decided to give you like some scriptures to kind of egg you on or at least give you an idea of where to start. These for me were just scriptures that I found amazing. In the last 20 years of following Jesus, a lot of these I've tried to commit to memory. So this next week, we want to ask you guys to find a scripture. Maybe it's just Psalm 1. Maybe it's Psalm 23. Honestly, that's probably the best place to start if you don't know. Psalm 23. And read through these scriptures with meditation. Lectio Divina. Go through it slowly and over and over again. Try memorizing, putting yourself into the scripture, reflecting, but most importantly, sitting still. Don't rush through it. We're all beginners. The hypothetical spiritual professionals are only those who have allowed more grace, not less, into their lives and routines or their meditation and habits. Do you get that? Like those that follow Jesus for a long time have only gotten good at allowing God to show us more grace because we need it, all right? So we're all beginners in this. When we read this chapter out of Foster's book amongst staff, we had a bunch of totally different responses. I'm going to give them to you. This is Kaylin. Kaylin normally is working downstairs. She oversees our kids and all of our operations. She said this after reading about meditation. She said, I couldn't do it. My brain wouldn't shut up. But when I finally read the chapter, the practical advice helped, specifically taking on the posture of having my palms up to receive and or putting my palms down to release was incredibly helpful in teaching me how to meditate. Zach, who's sitting in the room right here, does our youth group. He said, I do a quick version of this every night during prayer on my knees, offering to God the stuff I'm processing from that day. And every night I pray through the Lord's Prayer. Kelsey, is that true? Yep, okay. There it is. Keeping them accountable. Carson, who often teaches here, he's part of our teaching team, he said, 
It definitely feels as though my soul has been longing for this. As with a lot of things, time and intentionality are crucial. I must commit, to my, I must commit my time, and my daily rhythms need to function around this as opposed to the other way around. You catch that? Being intentional about making time. And for me, I have to confess, meditation for me has been like a lifelong battle against my smartphone, right? When that thing is tied to my hip or at my pocket or at my you know, bedside or in the morning or I go and I drink delicious coffee and intend to spend time with Jesus and it's just right there on the coffee table, it is a huge distraction. But as I've learned to put my smartphone away, I started meditating really after I read that chapter months ago, and I haven't stopped. It totally changed my morning routine. I used to kind of read through the scripture left to right, you know, through the Bible in a year, and now I'm just doing memorizing scripture and meditating. It's awesome. Now, I don't know if that's going to work for you. Again, all the soil, all the souls are different in this room, but we do want to invite you to try it this week. So, and we're actually going to do that right now. So if you will, you can... You can Watch it, don't put your Bible away, but open to Psalm 131. And as a time of response to this teaching, we're actually going to do meditation. Does that sound good? Yeah, we're going to go there. Yeah, anything to get me to stop talking. Okay. Now, if this is your first time in church uh, or a friend inviting you, you can join us or you can just observe quietly. There's no pressure. We don't do this often. But for the next, like, minute or two, we are going to allow ourselves to read through Psalm 131. We'll even put it up on the screen and just spend some time with this scripture in our minds. Read it. Reread it. Read it slowly. As this is happening, I'm going to get my guitar on and then we're going to respond like we normally do through worshiping, through song, through prayer, through the coming of the tables. And I'll give you direction when that time comes. So this is a good time to minimize distraction. You might turn off your phone completely if you can. Posture is helpful. I usually sit with my palms up. If you prefer to kneel or if you need to like stand and be in the back like my father-in-law always does, if that's helpful, <laughs> do that. Our posture matters to our souls. And then awareness. It's one of the final pieces of preparation. You might just take a deep breath right now. Be aware, you're in your body, you're here in this moment, your heart, your mind, your body, spirit are all connected as a part of your soul. Be present. Finally, becoming present in this moment, you, you're here. You're not somewhere else in your mind, you're not anxious about the thing that happened last week or the thing that's about to happen this week. If that's in your mind right now, just hand it over to God. Say, God, I trust you with that thing. And we become present with God and ourselves and the people in this room. I'm going to give you a couple minutes here. 